Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics, with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Well, Mark, great to be with you again on another episode of Informed Dissent, available on all podcast outlets, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You know, we talked the last episode a bit about that uh, our reach is not just in the United States, but is uh, literally international. Um, And we're really honored tonight to bring a very special guest, John Waters, all the way from Ireland. Uh, John is a uh, patriot who has been standing up and pushing back against some of the tyrannical policies uh, in his government and certainly of many governments around the world. So, John, welcome to Informed Dissent. It's an honor to have you. I know it's early morning where you are, and we're glad to have you on. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, yeah, it's a great pleasure to be on. It is early morning, very early morning, but it's, it's good to be here. Tell us about your fight. You've been doing this for a long time. Uh, tell us your story. Tell our audience um, what well, you've been yeah. doing in this battle for liberty. Okay, well, I, I'm, I, I used to be a journalist until about six, seven years ago, and then I got into a... a, a we had a terrible time in Ireland because of various campaigns against the Constitution by various interests, uh, campaigning for abortion and gay marriage and so on. And I was involved in fights in that. And as a result, I didn't make many friends in my then profession of journalism because they they were all on the one side and all those arguments. But uh, so I left then and and uh, I. I you know, I wrote, I write some books, and I, I, I have a Substack platform now, and so on. But I, I, uh, uh, in the last two years, with a, a for, another former journalist colleague, we, we were absolutely appalled at what we saw beginning to happen back in uh, March 2020, because Ireland has a constitution, a very strong constitution. You know, it's quite similar to lots of other kind of such charters and constitutions in the world. But it gives you, you know, it appears, to, it appears on its face to give pretty much close to absolute rights of free movement and, and association and you know, and so on. Um, and, you know, the protection of the family dwelling and, and the family and so on. And uh, it seemed like overnight uh, this was all scrapped, just bend. And so we took, uh, myself and Gemma Doherty, my colleague, took this case to, this, to the courts. Well, we ran into terrible trouble where the courts just seemed to try to, you know, procrastinate and, and prevaricate and, and filibuster and, and, and come up with all kinds of spurious uh, arguments to even prevent us getting a hearing. Uh, now we've made some progress and we are finally, we have worked our way through the system, through the High Court, the Court of Appeal, and in, on March the 15th we're in the Supreme Court to appeal the rejection of our uh, uh, application in the first instance. I think we have an extraordinarily good case. It's a watertight case. It's very similar. I, ironically, you know, I was listening recently to uh, the the former president of our prime minister of Newfoundland uh, talking to Jordan Peterson, uh, uh, Brian uh, uh, Peckford, I think is his name. Yes, he's the former pres- premier of Newfoundland who was involved in 1981 in drafting the uh, Canadian Charter of Rights. And I was astonished by it. almost every step of the way he was describing almost identically our case, except for one thing, he's applying under one heading, which is the right to travel, whereas we have multiple headings to do with fundamental rights of movement and association and so on and so on. So these are very common, but it's, this is something that's happened right across the world, 
where almost overnight, you know, the WHO, the World Health Organization, essentially redefined pretty much every single word, definitional word in terms of, you know, pandemic and, and, and epidemic and, and uh, all of the rest of it. You know, it's really quite extraordinary that they just uh, rewrote the entire meaning of, the, of, of these concepts and then declared a pandemic under these new definitions. And, and the governments of the world just folded and stood down their constitutions without any consultation with their people. I mean, the very basis of these constitutions is that they can only be changed with the permission of the people. And no permission was sought anywhere that I know of, and certainly not in Ireland. So that's what we're doing. We're asking, really, the court to say, look, it's kind of like a habeas corpus, where we're actually going in and saying, look, the entire population has been locked up by the government. Can you produce the body and explain to me and to the people why this has been done and on what basis? And I don't think they have any answers to that because they didn't conduct any... No, as far as I know, no individual government in any, anywhere, certainly not the Irish government, conducted a due diligence process before this was entered into. They simply took an instruction from external agencies and uh, completely ignored the rights and freedoms of their own peoples. Are you surprised that uh, more people aren't standing up and following your lead in pushing back against uh, some of these mandates and these uh, unconstitutional changes? Astonished is uh, I was absolutely uh, amazed. Not only did they not did people not support us, but they started to attack us in the street. It's quite sh shocking, really. Uh, people, now there's many issues here. I, I mean, I do think that there's a, a waning uh, to education and media and so on. Uh, there's a waning of people's uh, knowledge and interest in things like constitutions. I find an awful lot of younger people have no concept of what a constitution is for or why you might need one because it's like they assume they kind of think well you know freedom is just something that that is like air you know you're entitled to it and that's the end of it or you have it it's there you just simply avail of it they have no idea that it can be withdrawn and that it has been withdrawn uh, is that that was one thing about it but i also think that our populations generally i've, I've done a lot of studying about and reading about this and talking to people about this in the last couple of years they are, our, our societies are under mass hypnosis, I think, at the moment, have been for two years. That the, that the, 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 the way that the media, and it's very, it's very germane to me as a former journalist, and I do call myself a former journalist, I wouldn't I'd ever admit again to be to the word journalist, given what has happened to this profession. But it's like that the, this uh, journalism has become something else. It has continued to maintain, to hog the positions that make it look like those positions are filled. It's like a sentry post and you think, well, uh, you know, you're in the walled town and you're not sure if there's maybe marauding hordes outside, you know, but you look up and you see the sentry is still at his post. You say, oh, that's okay then. I don't need, I can sleep well, you know, but the reality is that the sentry is no longer working for the people in the town. He's working for the hordes outside. And, and that's what's actually happened. And uh, so there are many factors like this that, that have really... I, I'm quite astonished, you know, to... to I, I've often expressed in the last two, two... or tried to express in the last two years that it's actually impossible to express the feelings I have in the face of this because I could never... we could never have anticipated it. We could never have anticipated what's, for example, happening in... first of all, what's happening in Canada now, what's happened for the last three weeks with you know, the, the protesters, the truckers and their, their families and their friends. And, and, and then the way they're suddenly set upon 
under the orders of this guy Trudeau, you know, who has paraded himself as a liberal for, you know, uh, a freedom-loving liberal for, 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 for all his political life. But more dramatic and more, uh, you know, alarming, the fact that there is no kickback, there's nobody fighting back against this in the world. The politicians are pretending it's not happening. Whereas if it was the uh, president of Belarus or, 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 or uh, the prime minister of Hungary, they would be foaming at the mouth. At that, yeah, how dare this guy seize people's bank accounts? It's unheard of. And yet this guy can do it because he's wearing a shiny suit and is a liberal, or so he says he is. It's, this is the kind of thing that it seems to me that the entire um, base, the entire floor has fallen out of our civilization right now. And that nobody seems, there are no adults, there are no adults, or very few, who are willing to say, hang on. I really expected when we took this case in March, April 2020, I thought that we would be trampled in the rush to take such cases. And I thought that within a week or two, we would probably, you know, stand down our case because there were so many other ones which were doing the business by much more, you know, appropriate maybe or qualified people because we're not lawyers. Uh, nobody stepped back out forward at all. Nobody. It's quite astonishing. Uh, and, and, uh, uh, I have no explanation for it, really. I, I don't think you can have an explanation for it because this is deep in the... John, I'm going to interrupt you because you made a couple of really important points that I want to focus on that yeah. I think uh, are, are critical. You mentioned one in Ireland that you were astonished, as Dr. Barkey just asked you, at the lack of pushback and, in fact, the attacks on those who push for freedom. Yes. And then the second thing you said just now, which you brought up the Canadian trucker dispute, about how essentially Trudeau has turned into a fascist. Yes. I just read in the Toronto Star yesterday, uh, and this is all over the news in multiple uh, multiple reports, um, but this is just one example of it. The title of the article was Freedom Protests Are White Supremacy in All Its Glory. This is a common, now common and almost universal, not just in the U.S., but also in Canada, and perhaps it's happening in New Zealand, Australia, and Ireland as well, in the Anglophone countries, that there has been a redefinition, a redefining by the politicians and the journalists who support them, who are embedded with them, to redefine freedom as a bad word. Yes. Freedom is now a, a, a dark, evil force and that is the way that they are changing and manipulating language in order to counter the push for more freedom and the push to have freedom returned. Can you comment on that? Because I find this to be both alarming, disturbing, and unfortunately really endemic throughout the world right now. Well, from my study of the whole subject of hypnosis, this appears to be a key element of what is happening. It's, it's a hypnoidal device that if you can actually persuade people through language that, you know, the world is, is other than it is, then they will accept this, particularly if you have authority, the authority of the hypnotist or the authority of the journalist or the, turn, the authority of the politician, the leader. And if, if you notice the way that Trudeau in the, in the House of Commons consistently, when he's asked a question, never answers the question. He just goes into this kind of a mantra, a series of mantras, which you just chants out these things about protecting the Canadian people and the importance of freedom and so on and so on and so on. And this is happening all over the place. I mean, you know, it's very interesting, you know, in, in a certain way, if one wasn't so emotionally involved, it would be, as it were, interesting. 
that, you know, we have been attacked as, as uh, far right and fascists and all this because we have sought to fight these cases, uh, this case, uh, by people who actually have power are, are, and are acting clearly, manifestly, objectively, fascistically. You know, they are using their power fascistically, and yet they are pointing at us and saying we are, we are fascists, just as Trudeau is pointing at these work, hard-working truckers with their families and friends seeking to, to claw their freedom back from, from these tyrants. And, and this is an amazing thing. It's, it's an extraordinary abuse of language. But uh, the, the late uh, English philosopher Roger Scruton talked about these concepts uh, in terms of what he called spell words. And it's very interesting that the word insurrection, for example, has been used in Canada in the last uh, three weeks by the Prime Minister and by others. Uh, and that's uh, very deliberate for, for two reasons. Number one, it, that word is in the Charter of Rights. That's one of the exceptions. That's one of the exceptions that allows the government to suspend the Charter of Rights, war or, or insurrection. So that's why he keeps doing that. But by, it also is a, is a smear of the truckers. And that's, it's more than just a kind of a, a smear in the old sense. It's a hypnoidal smear, really, because it's like racist or it's like you know, misogynist or homophobe. These spell words that Scruton was talking about, that they act as a sense, as I would put it, like cattle Anti-Semitic. Yeah, yeah. They're like cattle prods. That as soon as somebody uh, says something which is unapproved, the cattle prod is produced and, you know, and they're immediately silenced. And everybody around watches and sees this, the action of the cattle prod on this person and the silencing of them. And they fall silent without any prompting. And this is part of the whole strategy. It's a really insidious, almost like satanic kind of cult-like behavior. Very clever because they just relentlessly do it. If you watch uh, 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 Trudeau, he knows what he's doing. He, you can see him swallowing when he stands up and simply say, I'm going to do it again now. I'm just going to call them names. I'm just going to smear them. He doesn't say this, obviously. But you can see that this is his intentionality, that he's, just, he's not going to listen to, to the, the leader of the, the, the opposition and the question. He will just repeat. I mean, he has smeared people in the parliament, people, Jewish people. He, he called them Nazis uh, and so on. Like, and and this, is, this is the way now. They know they have found that this works. Because why? Because the media is completely corrupt. This is the most important thing. I have said this repeatedly. None of this would be possible if we had real journalism. It would have been over in less than a week because the journalists would say, where's the evidence? You can't do this. They would have had constitutional experts and writing long articles in the newspaper saying, this is outrageous. This has never been done before. It cannot be done. It is illegal. There would be countless cases. Those cases would be supported by journalism. They would be written up. Our case was not written up anywhere properly. Nobody took our papers and put in the newspaper what we had submitted to the court. What happened was that there was a few instances of what now read like very sensible and prophetic exchanges on our part with the judge at the time saying that, you know, we were heading down the paths towards where we would have to produce our papers like they did in Nazi Germany. The judge sneered at this and this sneer became the headline in all the newspapers. So they were able to ignore everything we had sought from the court, everything we had, all the evidence we had presented. And this became, as it were, our entire case in the public mind. So this is, this is a new thing. You see I, I see, I don't think we, you know, really, as a journalist, as a former journalist myself, I have to be mindful of this, that we kind of took journalism for granted, that it was what it was. 
and that, that it would always be like that, that it could be nothing else. But it has become its antithesis. And yet it calls itself journalism. And it is like that idea of the sentry at the post. Everybody looks up. Oh, he's still there. It's okay. I can sleep. But we can't sleep because the sentry is on the other side. And the sentry is more likely to shoot us in our sleep than even the marauding hordes outside. John, you picked a, a pretty dark, but I think accurate picture. For our American audience, uh, paint a typical day in Ireland. What's it like there now? Going to the grocery well, store, going to church, being able to visit with friends and relatives. Well, first of all, I have to say that there's been some odd development in the last couple of weeks whereby they talk about relaxing the measures. Now, you know, that implies that the pandemic is over which of course I don't believe it is in any sense, in the sense that there was never a pandemic as such, and what it was, whatever it was, a coup d'etat, in effect, is not over. But it's a kind of a suspension. They've been talking about this in different ways. We had a very long and very tough uh, uh, lockdown situation for most of the last two years, one of the worst in Europe, if not in the world. Certainly not as bad as Australia, and, and certainly nothing like as bad as Canada at the moment, although there were flashpoints of you know, attacks by the, by the police and so on, uh, on, on ordinary de decent people who are simply uh, protesting outside the courts or, or outside the national broadcaster. But in, in that then you see you had, for example, one of the things, the thing that provoked us more than anything, we had in, in, in March uh, 2020, there was the, the new laws came in and the pubs were closed and okay, well, maybe you need to close the pubs for a couple of weeks. Fine, maybe, you know, it's not necessarily a fundamental uh, constitutional right to get drunk so okay and then the shop the non-essential shops closed and, and okay well fine maybe you know but then they they uh, next thing the police were stopping people and telling them you could only you could only travel two kilometers from your home and if the, the police if you didn't have a legitimate excuse the police sent you back uh, i said oh no <laughs> hang on no this is not acceptable so that was the bait that was the trigger for me and for Gemma, i think and, and but then, you know, there were other aspects like religious services were in effect or appeared to be banned. Like in the sense, police were going into to churches where, where people were at worship and, and stopping proceedings and, and taking names and uh, fining the priests and so on. Uh, that kind of thing. Um, the, the mass then in, in, in uh, July and August of 2020, they introduced face masks. At this point, you know, ostensibly, you would have said, well, it's now over. It has waned, whatever it was. And uh, But now, suddenly, you had to wear a mask on public transport. And, of course, it seemed to me immediately, to, it, it seemed obvious that this was an instrument, not of uh, not a health instrument, but an instrument of social control, of, of in fact, humiliation, really. That it was a way of, of first of all, reminding each person making a visible, creating a visible sign of the pandemic. Because when you think about this pandemic, it's a pandemic that has happened mainly on TV. You know, if you ask people, well, you know, how many people have uh, died on your streets or in your block or, you know, uh, in your family or and they say, well, no, nobody. But, uh, you know, it's a very serious pandemic. Yes, but why? Because it keeps saying it on TV is why. That's the evidence, you see. So, uh, and everything, it's very interesting. I mean, I've gone into it in great detail. I mean, where you look at where there seem to be very serious uh, mortality figures. In each case, there's a brilliant uh, Canadian scientist called Denny Rancourt who has done numerous studies all over the world and has really 
broken down the particular circumstances in each situation. And there are particular circumstances. They're not some kind of generic circumstances that you would find in a normative uh, 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 respiratory virus situation. Uh, and what you find is that actually, you know, the people are dying, have died because of panic, stress, uh, loneliness, uh, in, in some instances, the people have died from the vaccines in recent, in the last year, and so on. Many other uh, use of sedatives, overuse of sedatives, and so on. Medazolam, all of these, which again, if you had journalism, would be the stuff of everyday reporting in the newspapers and on the media, and there would be discussion. Everybody would know, and everybody would at least know the questions. Maybe not be satisfied as to the totality of the answers, but they would at least know what the questions were. But people do not even know there are questions, is the problem. So, so we have lived in this extraordinary stifling and, and a repressive atmosphere, which is kind of hard to describe because it sort of creeps up on you. You know, I felt that in myself, a, a sense of, you know, in, at the deepest level of your being that you are no longer free. And this has a profound effect on you if you're if you are sensitive to these things. That that somehow the, the elected democratic government, which are the representatives of the people, have somehow acquired for themselves the right to be our rulers and to dictate in this way to us as if we were occupied by some kind of alien force. That these are people that we give power to who have now usurped this power and used it against us and are using it on behalf of external agencies, the, w, the, the, the World Health Organization. Who are these people? They're mainly funded by, multi -billion, by, by billionaires. They're controlled by the Chinese Communist Party. Why have, we, have they any uh, traction in our cultures, in our democratic cultures? It's quite shocking. And so there are so many aspects of it, really. Uh, uh, We've had intermittent lockdowns where we couldn't travel any more than two kilometers. Then it became five kilometers. And, you know, people were being abused by the police, uh, stopped, summarily told to turn around, some dragged out of their cars in some instances. People who tried to protest were dragged away in vans. Uh, they were beaten. They were kicked. Uh, it's, it's really, you know, the first sign of this in Ireland, this is one of the other reasons, you know. I mean, you think about back in March 2020, I remember actually there was this talk about we I'd been in Italy myself with my wife and we came back and it had started to go over there in Bergamo and so on. But we came back into Ireland and the very first signal, you know, you think, OK, so there's a pandemic coming and, and you know, it means people are going to perhaps be very ill and that's very, very troubling and sad and so on. And people are going to die. And so you feel that, well, OK, you know, when people are sick, there is a sense that, well, the appropriate response is compassion. But the very first intervention by any official agency in Ireland was the Commissioner of Police of the, the Garda Síochána, uh, uh, Mr. Harris. And his contribution at the very outset was, well, very soon we're going to have powers to arrest people who are infected who refuse to isolate. So you think, oh, that's a very interesting keynote, isn't it, uh, to begin with? Uh, that is, this is, we're, they're concerned about our health. And they want to lock us up. Well, that will help a lot, won't it? So uh, that's that's the. John, are you worried at all about your own safety? Uh, about my own? No, no. Well, I don't. I don't get into that. I don't think so. I. I. I wouldn't. It doesn't bother me. I. I. My concern is is really for the future. 
I'm 66 years of age now, so you know I'm I'm in the exit lounge, or or certainly trying. I'm knocking at the door of the exit lounge. Uh, I'm ringing the bell, uh, and uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, I I. But my really grave concern is for for younger people. I, I have a daughter. Uh, uh, you know, I have several uh, step grandchildren, uh, and I'm absolutely heartbroken on their behalf that that I will not be able to hand them the free country that was handed to me by my father and mother, as it were. And and that is that's what keeps me awake. That's what keeps me working. That we must fight these people. What do you think the path forward is? How do you what do you see happening in the next few months or the next few years? It's well, it's, it's unclear at the moment. We seem to now the people now buy into the fiction that we are you know out of the pandemic. But of course, for whatever the ulterior motive of all this is, they have another plan, and that plan is not going to be freedom for the generality of people. That that's not the plan. What do you think the other plan is? Well. There are many aspects of it. Certainly it is about ultimate control of the society going into the area of artificial intelligence and the, the, really the destruction of uh, human work. Uh, that, that, whole, that moment of uh, where the artificial intelligence takes over. And really, if you would think of that moment, uh, over the last 35, 40 years, we have... There was 35 years ago when I was starting out in journalism, quite a lot of discussion about the future of work and so on, and there were lots of articles. And then that sort of disappeared. That's, this was a very important discussion for a democratic society to conduct. Well, how are we going to organize ourselves in the future uh, when we don't actually have to get up and do a day's work as we used to? How will the society be made to look? How will we distribute resources? So there would be a sense, I would have thought democratically, that there would be a moment when a dividend of some kind would have to be negotiated on behalf of the entire human race. Some sense of, I don't mean any communistic kind of thing, but the idea that if you don't have to work, well, you are born into the human race and you have a right to live. And that we must find some way, first of all, to, to organize that from a point of view of distribution of resources. But secondly, we have to think about, well, how then does the human person function in a society where meaning is no longer associated with what you do with your body and, and your mind every day for eight hours? And, and is it possible to create a, a concept of the human person, a dignified concept that will in, 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 in survive in that kind of uh, climate and that kind of cultural context. I call it a kind of like there was a necessity. There would have been a necessity for a redistribution of dignity, as it were, you know, and that that was a very pressing question. But nobody was interested in asking. Question. John, it's it's clear you're a very deep and thoughtful thinker. You mentioned that you're on Substack. Where can people find out more about you and follow you if they if they want yeah. to learn more about? Your thoughts and what you have yeah, to say. Yeah, my, my Substack platform is called John Waters Unchained, but you get me John Waters, W A T E R S, just one T, uh, uh, at John Waters at Substack.com. And uh, I have lots of articles on there and, and videos of interviews, and, and uh, not just with me, but also some, some with very essential people who have made very important contributions at critical moments. Uh, Somebody like, say, uh, Geert van den Bosch, uh, about a year ago, he started to warn about the dangers of the vaccines that were coming. And, and uh, Peter McCulloch, Dr. Peter McCulloch is another one. Lots of people like that. Uh, and also the economic thing, because there's a dimension 
here whereby I think the, the economy seems to be critical, that the, the, the money supply, the money systems of the world are on the point of, of implosion and that there has been a, a, a really a power grab and a money grab by the richest interests in the world. Uh, the major co uh, investment companies like that. We, we mentioned earlier that um, uh, our podcast is heard around the world and there are liberty-loving, freedom-loving people around the world that are listening that in their own way are trying to push back, trying to stand up, trying to fight back. What would your message be to those people of the world that are similarly oh. minded, that are frustrated and scared and wanting to make a difference? Oh, yeah. Well, I, what I would say to them above anything is do not underestimate your own uh, importance and the importance of your own courage, however small it may seem to you. You know, the fight back will be the cumulative effect of all of our courage put together. And, and therefore, anything you can do, however small it may seem to you at that moment, whether it's simply say, well, I'm going into the supermarket, I'm not going to wear a mask today. To be able to do that, that's a major achievement because you don't know who's going to see you walking around the supermarket and, and get courage, take courage from you or whatever else it might be. Not to participate in these things, not to, not to join in uh, because that's what they depend on. I think that's the most important thing because in, in many ways I don't think this will come down to organized protest as such, although I think there will come a moment when the people will rise up as one as they did, for example, in Czechoslovakia memorably in 1989. I, I see that as the moment when this will culminate. But in the meantime, we have to think of Václav Havel's concept of the power of the powerless, that in actually refusing to participate, we one by one move against this tyranny and he talked about this idea of the the oak tree which stands there in the fields looking as solid as it ever did and nobody realizes that the, the oak tree is rotten on the inside and that all you would have to do eventually is just to walk over and touch it with your finger and it will fall over i suspect something like that is going to happen i sense it already because mm -hmm. it seems to me people have this idea that whoever these tyrants are behind the tyrants that we see that they are somehow ingenious people and, and super clever and that they're too clever for us and everything they think is, is, is correct. I don't believe this. I believe that they're working from protocols that have been handed to them and that ultimately when you take the piece of paper out of their hand, they haven't a clue what to do. And I think they've already lost their way with this because uh, ultimately reality will decide what happens whether this works or not. And I don't think that you can have a, a, a world in which a, the, the human population of the world are treated as if they were superfluous, as if they're, they're, they had no futures. I don't see that happening. I don't see that working. But we may have to go through a few years of, of uh, horror uh, in order to get to the other side of that. But again, I would say to people, be, be not afraid. You, you, you are important. The power of the powerless belongs to you. And if you can hold that thought moment to moment, every day, and just do each day those little things that would just undo the possibilities that would be uh, uh, created by actually doing, as it were, then you will succeed. And together, if we do that, we will succeed. John, that's a that's a great message uh, to end on. 
but it's been an honor to have you on Informed Dissent, and thank you so much for speaking out on behalf of people fighting for liberty around the world. You've been listening to Informed Dissent with Dr. Jeff Barkey, board-certified primary care physician, and Dr. Mark McDonald, board-certified child, adolescent, and adult psychiatrist. Informed Dissent, the intersection of healthcare and politics.